0: All right. if you have your Bible, go ahead and find the book of Revelation, chapter 2. This morning we're going to pick up where we left off last week in the book of Revelation. I know we still have, I've already met a couple of guys who are here for the first time on on a Sunday morning. Maybe a number of you, and it's great. Um, what we do normally on Sunday mornings is just study straight through books of the Bible and um, usually pick one book to go throughout the, the school year. So last year it was the Gospel of John. This year it's the book of Revelation. Uh, in the summers, if you're ever here in the summer, we, we're in the Old Testament. Um, so anyway, um, we're still, if you have been here, you, you'll know what I mean. We're still in, squarely in this first major section of the book. Again, to rehearse for first-timers, just quickly, um, Revelation is twenty-two chapters long, and it appears that Revelation, when it was written, was in the in the mind of John or um, the Lord speaking His revelation through John, was is, is is composed of seven different sections that are cyclical. Like there's seven it, it and that those seven cycles in the book of Revelation. Forget that necessarily chapter divisions right now of course i'll tell you what those seven sections are per those just a minute but like almost like these these seven sections are the original divisions of the book and those seven sections uh each describe the same period of time over and over again seven times namely from the first coming to the second coming of jesus and the end of all things which i think are Happened at the same time. Jesus returns, and that's the end. <laughs> uh, right? So, uh, but, but it's describing this whole period of time, between his first coming and second coming. Section 1 is chapters 1 through 3. Section 2 is chapters 4 through 7. Chap- section 3 is chapters 8 through 11. Section 4 is chapters 12 to 14. Section 5 is chapters 15 and 16. Chapter 6 is 17 to 19. And s- chap- section 7 is chapters twenty. To 22 if you didn't have time to write those down it'll be on the podcast but like I said those seven sections are talking about the same period of time from the first coming to the second coming which means which means and the reason that's important is because we know that this book is not entirely about the future it's not it's not a book that is if it was entirely about the future like I said the first week this would be a book that is just for the ultra-curious about what's gonna happen in the future but this book is not just about the future it's a it's about the entire period of time between the first coming and second coming which means this this book every part of it would have been immediately applicable immediately relevant to the first century believers who received this revelation and not only that because it's from the first coming to the second coming we're in the same period of time that they were it's immediately relevant and applicable to us right now right and so um, this, we're in this first section. And, and this first section of the book is, is dominated by these letters from the Lord Jesus Christ addressed to seven different churches in Asia Minor, what would be today modern-day Turkey. And the churches in Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamum and Thyatira and Sardis and Philadelphia and Laodicea. If you map those out on a map, it would go like starting here at ephesus it would kind of go like a like a misshapen horseshoe like that which also tells you this is probably the route that the revelation traveled as it was passed from church to church um but the fact that there are seven of these churches and 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 with the number seven being not just in revelation throughout all of scripture the number seven being symbolic of of completion of fullness of of perfection Along with the fact that, as I mentioned last week, that these letters weren't sent individually to these churches. All seven of these churches, all seven of these letters were part of this one big fat revelation. And so as it made its round, all seven churches received all seven letters. Right? At least read them. And not only the fact of that, but every every letter has near the end of it this phrase, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Plural. Add all that together, leads to the conclusion that these letters that we're we're studying through right now were never meant just for these seven churches, um, but all of them together were meant for all churches for all time until Jesus comes back. That's how this first section is dealing with this whole period of time. The letters are perennially significant. Okay, these letters would have been relevant to them there and then as well as to us here and now. I hope we began to see that last Sunday in the church. In Ephesus I think we'll see it again today we look carefully at chapter 2 verses 8 through 11 and the letter from the Lord Jesus to the church in Smyrna if you found that place in your Bible we need to read it together first follow along as I read aloud beginning in Revelation chapter 2 verse 8 just reading through the end of that little short letter and to the angel of the church in Smyrna write the words of the first and the last who died and came to life I know your tribulation and your poverty but you're rich and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not but are a synagogue of Satan do not fear what you are about to suffer behold the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested and for 10 days you will have tribulation Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, would you give us ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches? This is is your holy, inspired, inerrant, sufficient, clear, authoritative necessary word Lord would you give us eyes to see the truth help us to not be intimidated by the book of Revelation help us to be humble before it but not intimidated knowing that you gave us these words for our benefit Holy Spirit give us help as we study it give us eyes to see the truth would you please give us minds to understand what the Lord Jesus is saying to the church in Smyrna and to us Would you give us hearts to embrace and love and care about and see and know and be convinced as important these things? And would you give us um, wills to obey whatever it is you call us to do? Give us all ears to hear. I ask again and give me the help that I need to teach in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. There is not a whole lot that we know from Scripture about this church in Smyrna, Um other than what we read right here uh they aren't mentioned anywhere else in scripture like the like when we study the church in ephesus i mean we have acts chapter 19 and the whole letter to the ephesians i mean we got a lot about ephesus nothing about smyrna um smyrna ancient smyrna is actually the the present day city of Izmir in turkey which is still a major city in turkey on the coast there it's uh not huge but it's it's a few million people um We know that that Paul and his companions his missionary companions We know that on on a missionary journey. They started the church in Ephesus in around A.D. 52 You're just uh, if you're interested in the history in A.D. 52 and Paul and his guys stayed in Ephesus for quite some time After they started the church there and in Acts chapter 19 verse 10. This is what we read this this being their ministry in, in and around Ephesus. This continued for two years. So that, and here's the here's the significant phrase, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord. Now, I don't know if that, that may be hyperbole. I don't know if they literally meant every literal person, man, woman, and baby, heard the word of the Lord, or if it just was so pervasive it was as if everyone in, the, in Asia heard the word of the Lord Smyrna being just 35 miles north of Ephesus surely would have been among among those in Asia who heard the word of the Lord so it, it is well within the realm of possibility that Paul and his companions also started this church in Smyrna and maybe around AD 53 or 54 um, which would mean that by the time this letter comes to them like the one that came to Ephesus this church was and it had been in existence for like 40 years Right? so it was a relatively young church but had a few years on it I don't know if you noticed earlier when we read this letter that the Lord Jesus did not fault them for anything he didn't in a, in every other church with the only other exception being the church in Philadelphia um, just after well, the, in most letters the Lord will identify himself as in, in a significant way he will then commend that church for something and usually, it'll be followed by this phrase, but I have this against you. But you don't find that here. Jesus introduces himself again in a significant way in verse 8. And then uh, he tells them in verse 9 that he knows what they have been facing as a church. He tells them in verse 10 what they are about to face as a church. And then at the end, he gives them a, a, a promise for their endurance to the end and an encouragement. And that's the whole letter. There is, he faults them for nothing. So as we try to take a closer look at this letter and think through it and see how it is still relevant to us today as it was then, here's how I want us to think through it for the next few minutes. If you're taking notes, here's the breakdown. Uh, first, I want to think about uh, the endurance, the endurance that he talks about in verse 9. He actually acknowledges among them a threefold struggle that I want to point out, that they were enduring. Uh, so point number one is going to be about the endurance in verse nine. Then in, this, in, the, in the first half of verse 10, I want us to think about the exhortation that the Lord gives them based on their current struggles as well as the struggles that were about to come their way. The exhortation that he gives them in the first half of verse 10. Finally, thirdly and finally, I want to think about the encouragement that he gives them on the bookends of this letter, both at the opening and the ending of this letter based on their current struggles as well as the struggles. Um, that they're about to endure okay so that's where we're going let's start first with just trying to get our heads around the world that these believers were living in in Smyrna and the struggles they were facing let's think with me about the endurance so does he z- see this again we're gonna zoom in on verse 9 and we see what we see there in that verse in verse 9 it does make sense what he says they are based on things we know about Smyrna from historical sources outside of the Bible um, And the Lord Jesus assures them at the beginning of verse 9, just like he did with the church in Ephesus and all the other churches, he'll say he knows what they're enduring. He knows it. Um, Remember that this whole first section of Revelation could be summarized as Christ in the midst of the lampstands. And what are the lampstands? The lampstands, according to chapter 1, verse 20, are these churches. Why are they signified by lampstands? We speculated that maybe in Matthew 5 Jesus tells his followers you are the light of the world right so it's 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 an appropriate uh, symbol to represent the churches we are a lampstand shining light in Auburn in Opelika Um, but Christ is among these these lampstands he's among the churches he knows everything about them he knows their strengths he knows their struggles he knows their secrets and in this case he tells them at the beginning of verse 9 the first of three things that he knows about them, namely, their tribulation. I know your tribulation, Smyrna. As, as, uh, as we saw some last week with Ephesus, Smyrna, and and it'll be this. What I'm about to say is go- not going to be true not only here but certainly when we come to Pergamum and Thyatira. Uh, that is, Smyrna was a place with deep devotion to the Roman Empire deep devotion to rome and to caesar and to the empire um sure because they were a greek city before they were a roman city they also had devotion to the pantheon of greek gods and greek goddesses uh it was one thing to refuse to worship the greek gods and goddesses that had consequences which we'll see later on but that was more religious in nature it was another thing for a christian not to participate in In the festivals, um, or the sacrifices to the Roman emperor, which was more civic in nature, it was more um, political duty in nature. And and why 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 these? It was this was a way for Caesar, whichever Caesar it was, to sort of maintain his sway and his influence. and his awe among the people, when when not physically there, right? People would still it would maintain that in the minds of the people because every so often they were to go and to offer a sacrifice and to pray and do these things, and profess Lord Caesar. Greg Beale, in his massive but really monumental uh, commentary on Revelation, here's what he said about this quote: "The imperial cult." Permeated virtually every aspect of city and often even village life in Asia Minor So that individuals could aspire to economic prosperity and to greater social standing only only by participating to some degree in the in the Roman cult Citizens of both upper and lower classes were required by local laws to sacrifice to the Emperor on various special occasions those refusing to participate were seen as politically disloyal and unpatriotic and would be arrested and punished according to Roman law which would mean exile often where's John writing this from exile on the island of Patmos or capital punishment it would kill you but genuine Christians he said could never call anyone Lord except Christ End quote to refuse to call or to bow and say, Lord Caesar, was tantamount to publicly professing treason. And, uh, and, and Christians were, were routinely accused and persecuted and killed for this in that day because they confessed only one Lord, Jesus Christ. And they knew that their ultimate allegiance was to one king, one kingdom. And it wasn't Rome. Verse 10, by the way, is going to give one example of the kind of tribulation they experienced, namely imprisonment. We'll say more about that in just a minute. But very often it was much worse than that. And very often prison led to this, which is resulting in martyrdom by the believers. Let me just give you one prominent example. It isn't out of the realm of possibility that the the bishop or the pastor of the church in Smyrna in this day was a man named polycarp anybody ever heard of polycarp yeah spelled just like it sounds p-o-l-y-c-a-r-p you ought to look him up and read about him he's the man um if he was the pastor we know that he was a pastor in smyrna in this general time period if he was the pastor here in this time he would have been young he would have been like in his 20s or 30s um because this was written in like 80 95 okay polycarp was martyred in 155 as an 86 year old man okay I'm about to tell you some snippets of his story um, again 155 polycarp pastor of this church in Smyrna 86 years old was um, himself arrested, persecuted, eventually killed for this very reason, for refusing to bow the knee and profess Lord Caesar. He was arrested. He was pressured to confess Caesar as Lord. And when he refused, they dragged him, 86-year-old man, they dragged him into the stadium of the city with thousands of people gathered there. Why would thousands of people just randomly be gathered there? Perhaps this was during one of those festivals where everybody in the city would have been paying homage to Caesar. And Polycarp conspicuously was not. Okay? So they they dragged him in front of the the stadium full of people. And the the Roman proconsul told him that he should repent. Right in front of the whole city. That you should repent and confess Caesar is Lord. Polycarp, as it comes down to us in history, Polycarp answered that he was not accustomed of repenting of that which he knew was wrong in order to do, uh, that, that which was, yeah, wrong, I'm going to get this wrong, <laughs> repenting of that which he knew was right in order to do that which he knew was wrong, right, which was bold. Um, so then he famously said this when he was pressured to, to refuse Christ, he said 86 years Eighty-six years have I served him, and he never did me any injury. How then can I blaspheme my king and savior? The proconsul then threatened to unleash wild beasts on him, to which Polly said, what are you waiting on? (laughs) Proconsul taken back a little bit said well do you not know that unless you repent I have the authority to burn you alive if you don't repent and reproach Christ and then to that Polycarp answered you threaten me with fire that burns for an hour but you are ignorant of the fire of the coming judgment and of eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly what are you waiting on bring forth whatever you wish Polycarp was then burned alive, but as the story goes, the flames weren't doing their job, so they ran him through with a spear and killed him. This was the kind of, this was the kind of persecution. This is the kind of tribulation. The word here is actually "phlipsis" in Greek, affliction, that they were enduring. Um, that was true not just in Smyrna, but in a lot of these cities to which the these letters came, especially those like S- 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 Smyrna, like. Thyatira, like Pergamum, with intense devotion to, to Caesar and to Rome. We don't necessarily face this kind of affliction, this kind of tribulation or persecution here, at least right now. But Christians in many places in the world do. They do. Um, most of them would probably find... In fact, it's so common in the world still today... Who would be reading this letter they would find our situation odd right but if we look again at verse 9 jesus doesn't just say he knows their tribulation he also says he knows their poverty though immediately he says but you're rich he reminds them of the real truth in christ their poverty was that a real thing yes why smyrna like um like Ephesus was a coastal city like a port city wasn't as big as Ephesus but a lot of ships a lot of trade coming in and out um, with a lot of people a lot of trade random tidbit but ancient Smyrna was the main exporter in the ancient world of the spice myrrh hence Smyrna right of a burial spice right it's 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 neither here nor there but it's, it's it's likely that when the wise men brought myrrh to Jesus when he was born that myrrh came from Smyrna Um, but it was a it was a trade place they valued trade and business and in those days different trades had different trade guilds or trade unions for lack of a better uh, phrase for it where those those guilds those unions would get together and do do different things for the good of their trade in the city for the good of their business in the city Uh, And very often, to be a member of one of those guilds, one of those unions, they would require different things for membership. Uh, They would often include not only recognition of Caesar as Lord, which we've already talked about, but often often more religious offerings to the Greek gods and goddesses. When Christians, as you could imagine, refused to participate in those practices, they would no longer be a part of the trade guild or trade union, and it completely ruined their business. Uh it completely ruined their and that just not just their, their livelihood right they were ostracized their businesses would would be marked nobody would buy their goods no one would hire them to do a a, a a service for them whatever service they would provide they could set up their shop anywhere in the city but it would it wouldn't have the stamp of approval on it as being part of a trade guild or a trade union and so it would consign the christian as jesus put it to poverty we do see We do see this kind of economic tribulation and and persecution in our culture. Christians face it all the time. If they operate their business in such a way that accords with their Christian faith as they understand it, refusing to participate in certain things or providing certain services that they believe would violate their conscience and their faith in Jesus Christ, they're taken to court their businesses are shunned Some, you know and it's it's the it's the full onslaught of the cancel culture and many christians at the receiving end of this are completely put out of business this is most definitely a hardship christians face in our culture and one that is very likely to increase for us um, with the passage of time isn't it interesting here that it, it is here it's here that the Lord Jesus immediately reminds them of the eternal riches they have in him. Because poverty is, how am I going to feed my children? Not just how am I going to feed myself. And he reminds them, you are rich in me. I pray they would never lose sight of that perspective. But Jesus identifies a third struggle that he knows they constantly face. Not just physical persecution, not just economic persecution, but also, for lack of a better term, social Persecution. He mentions in the latter part of verse 9 the slander of those who say they are jews and are not but are a synagogue of satan implying by the way that the church in christ is now the true israel but the persecution they received in this way was verbal it was slander they persecuted them with their words how so it seems from the context that maybe it came in two forms uh, one in just spreading lies that's what slander is um, is spreading a lie about someone maybe maybe spreading false what falsely what Christians believe did you know that there was often a misunderstanding in the in the ancient day um, that that Christians were cannibals why would you think why would they think Christians were cannibals because in the in the Lord's Supper they partook of the body of Christ right so Maybe they fostered that misbelief, that mistruth. Um, But also, not just spreading lies about them, but but the Jews of that day had essentially made a deal with the Romans. They They also couldn't offer a sacrifice to Caesar. But they said, I tell you what, we will offer a sacrifice to our God on behalf of Caesar. And they were like, sure, that's good enough so they were good but the Christians couldn't compromise even like that and so not only would these Jews slander them in public and misrepresent what Christians believe in front of the Romans and to turn the Romans and everybody else against them but it seems like also they perhaps they had slandered the Christians by basically outing them right Uh, whenever they could to the authorities I don't think it's coincidence that when the Lord Jesus tells them what was about to happen to them It was that they were about to be thrown into prison listen to this 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 is something we read elsewhere in the New Testament this is Hebrews 10 verses 32 to 34 and in that passage the, the author of Hebrews writes but recall the former days when after you were enlightened you endured a hard struggle with sufferings sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction And sometimes being partners with those so treated for you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one there are so many parallels between that passage and what is being described to the church in Smyrna here because what are those parallels like it talks about their struggle with suffering that's that's uh, that's affliction here That that struggle has to do with being publicly exposed to reproach, that slander. And the idea in Hebrews 10 is that Christians would go and visit their brothers and sisters who were where? In prison. They would go and visit them, and while they were visiting their brothers and sisters in Christ in prison, the authorities or whomever would come and plunder their home, plunder their property, and they come back and their home is destroyed and their goods are gone. Which leads to what? Poverty, right? It's all intertwined. You get the idea here that the, 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 the hardships of the believers in Smyrna was physical, it was economic, it was social. They lived in a place that did not want them to live there. Just imagine if you lived in a place like that. You live in a place where nobody else wants you to live there. In varying degrees, that has never changed for Christians. And we shouldn't expect it to ever be different. That is, is, um, why should we never expect that to be different? Because the Lord Jesus has called us to follow in his footsteps in this world, and those were his footsteps. But knowing the endurance they were facing, recall again, he doesn't say, but I have this against you as he does the other churches. Does this mean, when he, said, when he says, I don't have this, I don't, I have this, again. When he, the fact that he doesn't say that, does that mean that there's absolutely nothing in them with which to find fault? Does it mean that they were an absolutely faultless church in everything they did? Perhaps, I don't, I doubt it. I think it, I doubt, maybe it meant they were quick to repent whenever they did wrong, sure. I do think, though, in this case, it shows the incredible mercy of Christ In the midst of their suffering right that immediately follows up his catalog of all that they have endured tribulation poverty slander and soon-to-be prison he follows all that up not with a I have this against you but with a hopeful exhortation let's take a look at that exhortation quickly in verse 10 I see this exhortation really in just the first half of verse 10. It may sound funny that a hopeful exhortation would begin with, near the beginning, with, Behold, the devil's about to throw you, some of you, into prison. But you can tell in how the Lord says this that he's assuring them that they are not at the devil's mercy. First of all, Jesus calmly tells them at the beginning of verse 10, Do not fear what you are about to face. I mean, just think about that sentence do not fear what you're about to face and just think about what they were about to face and and what they were already facing this is a command this isn't a suggestion do not fear that's an imperative from Jesus how many times do we trust our eyes instead of the word of the Lord and worry ourselves sick But yet we still try to justify it in our minds some of them were already being persecuted physically some of them were already living in extreme poverty some of them were facing discrimination against them in society Some of them lived in constant fear of the slander of their Jewish neighbors for fear that they would be outed and face all of these things. And the Lord Jesus literally commands them not to fear any of it. That to us, to some of us at least, seems outside of the realm of possibility. How in the world were they not to fear at all prison? How were they not to fear poverty and hunger? And physical threats. And worse, recall Polycarp's story. I mean, he didn't. He was like, What are you waiting on? How are you not to fear that? We if that doesn't sound real to you, we fear l- much lesser things. How do you how are you not to fear for that? He gives grace for all that he commands. That's why Augustine could pray to the Lord, O Lord, command what you will, but grant what you command. That's because it's true. God gives grace in the moment of need. That's why fear is stupid. He gives grace in the moment of need. He gives daily bread in the day that you need it. The reason that you're tempted to fear the, that whatever that future possibility is that you're tempted to fear is because that day has not come yet with those new morning mercies. And the Lord will give you the grace to bear up under it when that day comes. But knowing that, knowing that ought to give you peace Today. I don't have to fear today because of the sure promise of grace tomorrow. When tomorrow comes. But notice that that Jesus doesn't just give them a bare command not to fear what is coming, but He gives them reason to trust what He says. Just after He tells them not to fear the prison that is soon to come to them, He reminds them of two important truths. One, He has a purpose in it. Don't overlook the phrase there, that you may be tested. And don't read that as just as though these trials, this imprisonment, is intended just to weed out those who are not genuine. Because again, he gives no warning to this church. It's not like he's afraid that there are those who are not genuine in this church. He doesn't fault them for their lukewarmness like he will Laodicea. No, this testing is meant to encourage them. It has a redemptive purpose in it. It's to, demonstrate, it's to demonstrate their genuineness. It's to show in the midst of the trial that they belong to Christ and he's in them. The same word for tempted here we found in Hebrews 2.18 where we read, For because he himself, that is Jesus himself, has suffered when tempted, that is tested, Jesus was tested, he is able to help those who are being tested or tempted. Trials have his good purpose behind them to sanctify us and produce the life of Christ and likeness of Christ in us, and draw us closer to him. But, two, looking again at verse 10, he doesn't just have a good purpose in the trials, he is completely sovereign over the trials. He tells them, For 10 days you will have tribulation. Again, numbers are not literal in Revelation. That doesn't mean, in this case, he's not saying you're going to go to prison for 10 literal days. No, 10 days is just symbolic of a short but a definite period of time. We're going to see that later on when it talks about a 1,000 years. It's a long but definite period of time. 10 days, short but definite period of time. They would have, that him saying this, they would have immediately let them know that they are not at the mercy of their enemies. They are not at the mercy of the strength of those who are about to throw them into prison. But that the Lord Jesus is providentially sovereign over everything that's about to happen to them with his re- redemptive purpose in it to be accomplished. So don't fear. Don't fear. As we come to the last bit of the passage, having exhorted them not to fear, he gives them one final encouragement. And I see the encouragement actually at the ends of this letter. I have told you that his introduction of himself in each letter is different each time. And it's, an, it's, it's important, it's significant, the way he identifies who he is. And here in verse 8, he, he identifies himself as, quote, the first and the last who died and came to life. Can you see why this would be significant to a suffering church? this again, just take it phrase by phrase it reminds them one, that he's God over all he is the first and the last and it is his purpose that's going to prevail and be accomplished the believers in Smyrna may feel powerless, but the Lord is not and they need to remember that I'm the first and the last, but he also says I'm the one who died and came to life he's already conquered death, even though you may die I came to life Why tell them this? Because even if in their minds the worst thing happened to them, Polycarp, what do they have to fear? In fact, Jesus does even more than what meets the eye here. He doesn't just remind them that they or we um, will ever endure anything more than what he himself already endured for us, but he actually reminds them that the worst possible thing that could ever happen to them has actually already happened to them in Christ. The worst thing, the worst thing that could possibly happen to you is not only that you face the first death, but upon facing the first death, you then go on to face the second death. Jesus already endured the second death in your place and won the victory over hell and the grave. And hence he promises in verse 10, at the end of verse 10, be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. And at the end of verse 11, the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death, the second death being hell and separation from the Lord for all eternity. This is precisely why Polycarp could face his persecutors in Smyrna who threatened to burn him alive and make him be eaten by lions. You threaten me with fire that burns for an hour, but you are ignorant of the fire of the coming judgment of eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. What are you waiting on? Bring forth whatever you wish. And the common Im- invitation in each of these letters is he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Jesus made no promise here to the church in Smyrna that he doesn't likewise make to us today. Let me leave you this, these words from the Apostle Paul in Colossians 3. "If then you have been raised with Christ, Seek the things that are above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above. Not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ who is your life appears then you also will appear with Him in glory. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for these letters and these words. I pray that you would embolden us. I remember those first believers in Acts chapter 4 when threats came their way. They were not immediately bold. But when they prayed for it, you gave it to them. I pray that you would make us bold. Some of us, and I and I find myself among this camp, far too often never face any pushback or persecution because we are rarely bold to bear witness would you make us bold to bear witness please on the campus of auburn university in our apartment complexes in our neighborhood help us to be winsome kind and humble but bold and fearless